this season of, of looking at the Bible together, we're calling it Do It Again. Jesus, what you have done, do it in our experience. Do it in our time. Do it in our place. I didn't know when I was thinking about what should we call these, uh, these sermons, and I, I thought, do it again. I didn't know it was prophetic. I didn't know it was prophetic about Tranmere Rovers Football Club. That what they did last season, they would do it again. And uh, I don't know whether any of you have been interceding on their behalf. I know I've been directing you to intercede on behalf of Liverpool. But, but some of your intercession might be uh, spreading out towards Tranmere as well. I don't know. They did it again. Amen and hallelujah. We're not going to make any reference to what Manchester City did again. Because that is not the work of God, obviously. <laughs> Um, I'm not going to say it was the work of the other fella, but um, no, I wouldn't say that. Fine, upstanding members of the community, I am sure. However, tonight, we're going to consider, and last week, you know, we looked at a fantastic story of a friendship that makes a difference. Our part to play in bringing people to encounter the living God is that fantastic story of, of a guy, he was paralyzed, lying on his bed. But he had some friends. It's a good thing to have friends. And they brought him to Jesus. And even though they couldn't get in through the door, they couldn't get in through the window, and nobody else would shift out the way to let them in, grumpy bunch, they weren't going to be put off. And they dug through the roof. Yeah? They dug through the roof. That's how much they wanted to be close to Jesus. That's how much they realized that Jesus was their hope. And there came hope and healing and all these wonderful things. We're going to take this a little bit further, a slight kind of sideways shift tonight. We're going to open up um, the Bible to a little letter. Um, you may pronounce it Philemon. Some of you may pronounce it Philemon. Uh, none of us knew the guy, so we, you know, we can pronounce it how we want. Uh, but it's right there in your Bible, towards the end of your Bible, just before Hebrews. If you've got a Bible near you under the chairs, you might want to grab it. It's going to come up on the screen as well. We're going to read the whole letter. It's a short letter, uh, but it's packed full of teaching for us tonight. So the letter comes from Paul, and he says in verse 1 of the letter, he is a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and it comes also from Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you, and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Does anybody want the sharing of their faith to be effective? Yeah. That the people around about us might know the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Amen. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, 
but now indeed now he is indeed useful to you and to me i am sending him back to you sending my very heart i would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel but i prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion but of your own accord for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it, to say nothing of your owing me even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. In some senses, it's an unusual letter. It seems just like a bit of personal correspondence, doesn't it? Truth is, it is. It is personal correspondence, clearly between people who have a high degree of respect for one another, love for one another. They're friends, naturally they're friends, but they're friends and indeed brothers in Christ. And although there are some spiritual teachings in here, it is a resolutely practical letter as well. And it's going to teach us tonight how we might behave, what life we might bring when someone we know is hurting, when someone we love is hurting. Truth is, Hurting people are everywhere. Now, I could hazard a guess there are some hurting people in this room this evening. When you go home tonight, you'll find hurting people. And they'll be hurting people in your streets. And I was going to say when you go to work tomorrow, but hopefully many of you won't be going to work tomorrow. But even if it's the next day, you'll find hurting people there too. The people who perhaps have hit rock bottom, maybe some who've made mistakes in life or took a wrong turn. Maybe some people have experienced breakdown in relationship. Maybe breakdowns in families or in marriages. Maybe some have lost jobs or have found their financial circumstances troubling. Maybe others get themselves entangled in things that they shouldn't. Some who might lie or cheat or get caught in acts that are unholy or even illegal. Maybe there are others who are hurting. Not because of something they have done at all, but because of circumstances that have changed around about them. Things that they counted on, things that they even depended on that were cruelly snatched away from them. And still others hurt because they become entangled in maybe the wrong set of acquaintances or relationships that they thought would, would, would last and help. But they've become quite the opposite. We know hurting people. Sometimes we are hurting people. The hurting people are our kids, our parents, husbands, wives, our friends. They're the people around about us in our churches. 
They're those who lead us in all areas of life and those that we lead. And the Apostle Paul here is writing a letter about a hurting person. It is the only private letter we have from the Apostle Paul, but it's included in the Bible considered to be the inspired word of God that can teach us, instruct us, and bring us the hope of Christ. In these short words, 25 verses, you could fit it almost on a postcard, Paul shares some tender thoughts and some powerful truths about grace and forgiveness and acceptance. There are three characters in this letter. We've got Paul, the apostle, the teacher, the preacher, the extender of the kingdom of God. And he's in prison in Rome. Philemon. He is a Christian, and yet within his culture, he clearly was a man who owned slaves. He lived in the city of Colossae in a part of the Roman Empire called Asia Minor, now in Turkey. And he was clearly a close friend of Paul. We don't know, maybe Paul personally led him to Christ. But we do know from what we read in this letter that a church met in his house and he was clearly a respected Christian leader. And lastly, we've got this guy Onesimus, a runaway slave. You say, well, of course he was. Who in their right mind would stay in those circumstances? And we might have a great deal of sympathy for somebody who would want to get out from under uh, the heel of that rule one way or another maybe directly or indirectly he's ended up in Rome and he's met Paul who has led him to Christ how did Paul describe it he said he said he's become my child I'm now his father not naturally but spiritually Paul has led Onesimus to Jesus it's possible that he met Paul through Paul's friendship with Philemon and that's why perhaps he sought him out in Rome we don't know But in any case, after Paul led Onesimus to Christ, Onesimus stayed with Paul, and Paul is clearly treasuring him. These are our characters. And these characters revolve around the central issue in the letter. Paul now had a converted slave on his hands. And he's decided that it is right to send Onesimus back to Philemon, his master, But something profound and powerful has changed. Onesimus is now a believer in Christ. He left as a rebel against the system, but he now returns as a brother in the family of Christ. What is that going to look like? Paul is writing because he wants Philemon to understand something has changed. I don't know about you, but when, when we come to Christ, we need to recognize this, that this is not just about asking Jesus to attend to our problems. Likelihood is, when each of us have come to Jesus, we had problems. You know, we weren't runaway slaves, but maybe we were running from this, that, or the other. Maybe naturally or, 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 or figuratively, we were running from things. Maybe we were desperate for Jesus to come and bring hope and healing into our situation. But here's the truth of it. Jesus doesn't just attend to the issues of our life. Jesus fundamentally changes who we are. If you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you're never the same again. The Bible describes it like this. It says that once you were far off from God, but now you couldn't possibly be any closer. The Bible says that to be a Christian is to be hidden with Christ, with Jesus himself, in God. 
It is to know this truth, this reality that he will never leave you nor forsake you. It is for this to be true, that God, once distant, is now your father. Your father that you can talk to on any occasion about anything because he's welcomed you into his family. If you placed your trust in Jesus, he's not just the, the leader of your religion. No, he is your best friend. And the Bible describes him as your, the firstborn brother in your family, the firstborn from death, the firstborn to this new life. Everything is changed. And that was true for Onesimus. Paul writes to Philemon, he wants to make it plain. Philemon knew this for himself, but he needed to know this for Onesimus as well. And just a quick note about slavery in the first century in the Roman Empire. You know, it was occasionally practiced in the history of the people of God, although under very strict rules, but it was never widespread. But in the Roman Empire, it was massively widespread. It was everywhere. Every uh, wealthy citizen would think nothing of having a number of slaves. Some extremely wealthy citizens would have thousands of slaves. Slavery was so commonplace and so accepted that no one thought seriously to oppose it. And in the law of the time, there was really no uh, protection for slaves. They were regarded as property, not as people. Owners could mistreat their slaves, even kill them, without any recourse to law for those around. And the law specifically provided that owners could put runaway slaves to death. It's that circumstance, that environment, that Paul is writing to Philemon. So it might come as a bit of a surprise that Paul's answer to this problem, to this need, to this hurt, to this rupture, is to send Onesimus back to Philemon. You might think, do the opposite. Keep him with you. Or maybe send him further away into hiding. But actually, there's possibly here, in Paul's thinking and his understanding and the leadership of God, there is possibly an even better way. It's not that Paul didn't know slavery was wrong in the eyes of God. And those kind of questions, they trouble us. And, and we might think that actually something else needed to be attended to. But the, the true message of this letter, the deep message of this book, can speak life. Not, not only to, to those at the time, but to us today. Because it's going to speak a message of healing. It's going to speak a message of healing on every level for everyone involved. I want to remind you this evening that Christianity, that Jesus has the power to heal. I wonder this evening, does anybody believe that? Do you believe that Jesus has the power to heal? To heal broken hearts, broken minds, broken bodies, broken relationships, to heal a broken world. It's the message of the cross to us this evening. It can be your lived reality. I know it is the lived reality for many of us here tonight. It can heal, put people back on their feet again. And you know, you and I, we can, we can be the connection between broken people and a healer who loves them. How might we do that? I want to suggest the first thing that we need to do is to be a friend. You might say, well, that, that sounds pretty simple. Doesn't that sound a bit too easy? Hmm. 
A friend is somebody who knows you and loves you anyway. A friend is somebody who steps in when the world steps out. A friend is somebody who will never get in your way except when you're on the way down. And yet, there's so little friendship. I was reading this week about one study whereby 60% of men over the age of 30 couldn't name a single person they'd call a friend. And of the 40% who could think of a friend, they were all friends that they'd made back in their childhood or their school days. It certainly doesn't seem to come easy. In the same study, amongst ladies, ladies generally could name five or six friends, yet when they drilled down into it, a number of those friends were in kind of functional relationships. They weren't just friends for friendship's sake. Friendship isn't easy. But it is important, and it's incredibly precious. If you're a Christian tonight, I want you to realize this. Before anybody, any follower of Jesus, was ever called a Christian, they were first called a friend. The Bible makes it plain to us that disciples of Jesus were only ever called Christians a little way along down the journey in a town named Antioch, quite a few years after Jesus had gone back to be with his father. Yet many times before that, Jesus himself looked at his followers. He didn't call them Christians. He said, you're my friends. If Jesus is affirming his relationship with us as firstly a relationship of friendship, we need to recognize that friendship is important. Don't hide away. Don't run from friendship. Seek it. And this is exactly what Paul is asking from Philemon in reference to Onesimus. Now Philemon had been a good friend to Paul. Verse 1 in what we read He writes to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, or our dear friend, it may say in your translation of the Bible. Not only to Paul was Philemon a friend, but in verse 5 we find that he was somebody who had love for all of the saints. This is somebody who characterized and practiced acts of friendship, of love, and of kindness. And now Paul is saying, be a friend to your slave. Be a friend to Onesimus. And Paul, later on in the, in the letter 15 and 16, he says, maybe this is why he was separated from you for a brief time, so that you might get him back, no longer as a slave, but more than that, as a dearly beloved brother. Friendship. And the best kind of friendship. Friendship in Jesus. All too often, when somebody can be seen to be hurting, struggling or wrestling with this or that friends can seem hard to come by when times get tough oftentimes it's not the tough who get going it's the friends who disappear oh don't let it be said so of us when those around us are hurting when saints in Christ are faltering let's get close let's draw near when we're needed when they need support, when they need affirmation, when they need someone who will say, yeah, when you don't feel up to it, I'll help you to connect to Jesus. I'll help you to realize his love and his healing and his help. There's a great depiction in the film, The Color Purple. The character, um, Sophie, in the movie and the book, uh, spending several years unjustly incarcerated for a minor offense. When she's finally released from prison, she's a broken woman who can barely function. 
Sophie's mistress casually hands her a shopping list to fill. And in the movie, you see how the lead character, Celia, a woman who has endured great pain, sees Sophie staring at the grocery shelves. And she recognizes her vulnerability. She protects her, coming alongside her, quietly filling the grocery order for her. That's the picture of friendship. That's the picture of care that we're talking about. A refreshment. That's what Philemon is described as, somebody who refreshes the saints. Are we that kind of friend? Would somebody say of us, oh yeah, they really refresh me. (laughs) I know it sounds a bit strange, but does somebody really refresh you? Do they enliven you? Do they cause you to, to feel just that bit more alive? And how about you? When you come alongside somebody, do you help them to feel that bit more alive in Jesus? Can we be a friend? Not just be a friend, but can we be a forgiver? It's all too common, isn't it? For folks to remember old hurts, blames, injustices, to dredge them up, reopen old wounds, We find it hard sometimes to forgive, but even if we find it possible to forgive, all too often we don't really forget. Hang on to things. As a Christian, we're called to a better way. We're called not only to forgive, but to follow the example of Christ in forgetting hurts and wounds, insults, slights, and to see people through the eyes of Christ. Folks with wounded hearts oftentimes need second chances. Oftentimes they need to know forgiveness and hope. That their woundedness is not their final destination. The good news of life in Christ Jesus is good news of second chances. I don't know if this evening you feel like you've messed up your first chance. Maybe you're saying, actually I've messed up my second chance. Maybe my third, my fourth, my fifth. The, The good news here is that Jesus, he's never done with us. He's never done with us. He's never finished with us. He's never going to abandon us. God is a God of forgiveness. God is a God of hope. And the good news that came to Onesimus was that his story wasn't over. He wasn't going to live out his days in a prison because that was the only place he could be safe. There would be a better way for him. The Bible is stuffed full of these kinds of stories. Stories of folks like Jonah, who so messed it up that he found himself in the belly of a whale at the bottom of the ocean. And yet there was a second chance for him. Has anybody here ever messed up that bad? I don't think any of us have ever found ourselves in the belly of a whale at the bottom of the ocean. Or maybe some of you are saying, uh, metaphorically, we have. I don't know. Or how about the story of a guy named Peter, who messed it up so bad that when Jesus most desperately needed him, he cursed the very name of Jesus. That's a pretty bad way to mess it up. And yet Jesus had hope for him just as much. He said, there's a second chance for you. Paul, the guy who wrote this letter, is a guy of second chances. He'd been persecuting, attacking the people of Jesus. And now he can write a letter encouraging the refreshment of the people of Jesus. How his life was turned about, so could yours be. And now Paul is requesting that Philemon give Onesimus a second chance. I'm sending him, he says in verses 12, 
I'm sending him a part of myself back to you. In verse 17, accept him as you would me. Second chances. Second chances. Being a friend. Being a forgiver. I'm going to come on to say as we close, being somebody who gives another person a future. I want to read to you a story. It's a story of a, I think it was at a convent school some time ago. And the teacher in question, I think, was a nun. I don't have the details, but from what I read, that's the sense I get. I want to read to you this story. I think it speaks to us. The profound difference that friendship, forgiveness, and, and, and looking to someone's future can make in somebody's life. The story goes like this. And the, the, the teacher's recounting it. He was in the first third grade class I taught at St. Mary's School in Morris, Minnesota. All 34 of my students were dear to me, but Mark Eklund was one in a million. Very neat in appearance, but had that happy-to-be-alive attitude that made even his occasional mischievousness delightful. Mark talked incessantly. I had to remind him again and again that talking without permission was not acceptable. What impressed me so much, though, was his sincere response every time I had to correct him for misbehaving. Thank you for correcting me, sister, he would say. I didn't know what to make of it at first, but before long I became accustomed to hearing it many times a day. One morning, my patience was growing thin when Mark talked once too often, and then I made a novice teacher's mistake. I looked at him and I said, if you say one more word, I am going to tape your mouth shut. It wasn't 10 seconds later when Chuck blurted out, Mark is talking again. I hadn't asked any of the students to help me keep watch on Mark, but since I had stated the punishment in front of the class, I had to act on it. I remember the scene as if it had occurred this morning. I walked to my desk, very deliberately opening my drawer and took out a roll of masking tape. Without saying a word, I proceeded to Mark's desk, tore off two pieces of tape, and made a big X with them over his mouth. I then returned to the front of the room as I glanced at Mark to see how he was doing. He winked at me. That did it. I started laughing. The class cheered as I walked back to Mark's desk, removed the tape, and shrugged my shoulders. His first words were, of course, thank you for correcting me, sister. At the end of the year, I was asked to teach junior high maths. The years flew by, and before I knew it, Mark was in my classroom again. He was more handsome than ever and just as polite. Since he had to listen carefully to my instructions in the new mathematics, he did not talk as much in ninth grade as he had in the third. One Friday, things just didn't feel right. We had worked hard on a new concept all week and I sensed that the students were frowning, frustrated with themselves and edgy with one another. I had to stop this crankiness before it got out of hand. So I asked them to list the names of the other students in the room on two sheets of paper, leaving a space between each name. Then I told them to think of the nicest thing they could say about each of their classmates 
and write it down. It took the remainder of the class period to finish the assignment. And as the students left the room, each one handed me the papers. Charlie smiled. Mark said, thank you for teaching me, sister. Have a good weekend. That Saturday, I wrote down the name of each student on a separate sheet of paper, and I listed what everyone else had said about that individual. On Monday, I gave each student his or her list. Before long, the entire class was smiling. Really? I heard whispered. I never knew that meant anything to anyone. I didn't know others liked me so much. Now, no one ever mentioned those papers in class again. I never knew if they discussed them after class or with their parents, but it didn't matter. The exercise had accomplished its purpose. The students were happy with themselves and one another again. That group of students moved on. Several years later, after I returned from vacation, my parents met me at the airport. As we were driving home, mother asked me about the usual things of the trip, the weather, and so on. There was a light lull in the conversation. Mum gave Dad a sideways glance, and I simply said, Dad. My father cleared his throat, as he usually did, before something important. The Ecklands called last night, he began. Really, I said. I haven't heard from them in years. I wonder how Mark is. And Dad responded quietly. Mark was killed in Vietnam, he said. The funeral is tomorrow, and his parents would like it if you could attend. And she says, to this day I can still point to the exact spot on the highway where Dad told me about Mark. And she continues, I'd never seen a serviceman in military coffin before. Mark looked so handsome, so mature. All I could think at that moment was, Mark, I would give all the masking tape in the world if only you would talk to me. The church was packed with Mark's friends. Chuck's sister sang the battle hymn of the Republic. Why did it have to rain on the day of the funeral? It was difficult enough at the gravesite. The pastor said the usual prayers and the bugler played taps. One by one, those who loved Mark took a last walk by the coffin. I was the last one to bless the coffin. As I stood there, one of the soldiers who had acted as pallbearer came up to me. Were you Mark's math teacher? He asked. I nodded as I continued to stare at the coffin. Mark talked about you a lot, he said. After the funeral... Most of Mark's former classmates headed to Chuck's farmhouse for lunch. Mark's mother and father were there, obviously waiting for me. We want to show you something, his father said, taking a wallet out of his pocket. They found this on Mark when he was killed. We thought you might recognize it. Opening it up, he carefully removed two worn pieces of notebook paper that had obviously been taped, folded, and refolded many times. I knew without looking that the papers were the ones on which I had listed all the good things each of Mark's classmates had said about him. Thank you so much for doing that, Mark's mother said. As you can see, Mark treasured it. Mark's classmates started to gather around us. Charlie smiled rather sheepishly and said, I still have my list. It's in the top drawer of my desk at home. Chuck's wife said, Chuck asked me 
to put this in our wedding album. I have mine too, Marilyn said. It's in my diary. Then Vicky, another classmate, reached into her pocketbook, took out her wallet and showed her worn and frazzled list to the group. I carry this with me at all times, she said. I think we all saved our lists. Have you come here tonight, maybe broken, maybe hurting, maybe wondering about your future? Jesus is our hope. But you know, sometimes it'll take a friend to help us to get there. Sometimes it'll take one who will come alongside us and see the best in us. Sometimes it'll take one who will come alongside us and in spite of our worst impulses or our greatest disasters, who will be a person of forgiveness and of second chances. will see our potential. Speak life into our future. Philemon had Onesimus' future in his hands. By rights, he could have had him executed. But Paul plays on the name of this man's word. Onesimus, it means useful. <laughs> and he said to Philemon, once by his rebellion, he was of no use to you. But now, he is of use both to you and to me as a brother in Christ. He has a future. He is a person who knows healing, who wants to know healing, and who can bring healing. We don't know how the story plays out exactly. There's no PS at the bottom of the letter. There's no return letter that we're aware of. There's a little hint in Christian history. A church father by the name of Ignatius writing 50 years later on from this letter in the Bible to a, the, the, the church in Ephesus. He addressed their wonderful minister, their bishop, who happened to go by the name of Onesimus. In this letter, Ignatius referred to Onesimus as the one who was formerly useless to you, but now he has become useful to both you and me. Seems likely that he's playing on the words of scripture so that we might know how things panned out with this Onesimus. There was hope. There was healing. There was friendship. There was forgiveness. There was a future. All because of Paul, Philemon, Onesimus, seeing God for who he was, seeing one another for the people of God, who could be something absolutely remarkable. And the three of them, and who knows, countless others beside, becoming a network of healing, a network for the grace of God to be poured out in mighty measure. As we've been going through this series, do it again. I've said on numerous occasions, I've said, look, God wants to heal people today. But you and I have to be the way of people coming and accessing that healing. I know on a couple of occasions I've said to you, bring people. Bring people with you and we'll pray for them. We'll pray that they might encounter God, that they might encounter his gracious healing in their lives. I've said to you, don't just be obsessed 
with gathering together as a church as though that is the pinnacle of our experience here on this earth. No, no, no. The pinnacle of our experience here on this earth is going with Christ to those who are in need of recognizing that he wants to fill us so that we might go to another and see them come to the future that can be theirs in Christ Jesus. We read a story like that of that teacher and we're moved by it. It's just beautiful. But it can be your story. It can be my story. Don't be moved such that, you know, I feel my voice quavering as I read those kinds of things. If that's the extent of the movement, then it's not much movement. If there's a tear that might creep into an eye, then that's a movement, but it's not enough. If there's a movement that causes our hearts to say thank you to God for what he's done in us, that's a good movement, but there's more. It wouldn't be enough for Philemon just to give thanks to God for what he had done in his life. He needed to be moved, moved by what Paul wrote in the power of the Spirit so that he might be one who gave thanks for Onesimus. Praise God he did. Because Onesimus also became a conduit for the power of God to come into the lives of others. Church, Christians, I want to say to you tonight, you are the hope of the hurting people around you. Don't delegate this responsibility. Us in Christ, Christ in us, the hope of glory in this world. You and I, I don't know, it's quite an aspiration to be a Paul, isn't it? But we can be a Philemon. Because doubtless we know an Onesimus. Doubtless we know somebody in our circumstance and they're broken and they're hurting. Hey, they may have hurt you. They may have caused you great trouble, but you can be their hope. You can be the one who brings them to the saving grace of God. You can be the one who heals their hurts. You can be the one who enables them to come to their future in Christ Jesus. Our church, would you stand with me this evening?